just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Mike, I'm going to dispense with the pleasantries today as I've got a point to make. I take no pleasure from any of the following diatribe. I took a lot of flack this week, Michael, for my taking the podcast last week. Some of it was in good fun, some of it was constructive criticism, and some of it was just plain mean-spirited. I've been labeled Mr. Negative, Mike. I'm Mr. Glass Half Empty. And in general, nothing could be further from the truth. I love this team. I've always loved this team. I've loved this team since I was 12 years old. And I always hope we do better than we actually end up doing. But Mike, what I am in general is a realist. And I am overly blunt. I do not try to mince words. I do not try to soften blows. If it comes out overly rude or mean sounding, so be it. But what we're trying to do here, Mike, is give an analytical review of the team we all love, the Pirates. That means not soft stepping around problems. That doesn't mean that we're going to put on the blue glasses and say everything's kosher. Mike, as you know, this podcast is a labor of love. We don't monetize it. We don't try to sell anything. We're just trying to have fun and see how far we can take it. But you know what? With that being said, I hope you're prepared for the following. This past week, it didn't take a Dan Patrick or some other professional commentator to describe what happened. This team came out unprepared, uninspired, and gave us two efforts that were underwhelming. We had a home game with a team that has spent the entirety of the Big East schedule on the conference's underbelly. And we played down to the competition, Mike. Kevin Willard even came out afterwards and basically took the blame, saying that the team didn't practice over seriously and they expected Xavier to roll over. And we followed that up by getting rolled by an undermanned St. John's team, missing their second leading scorer at what was supposedly our second home away from home, Mike, at the Garden. So we basically followed up a game that we didn't take seriously with the least prepared game I've ever seen from a Seton Hall team. You always tell me at the end of these podcasts, can we just play the game? You tell me that every week, Mike. You weren't intimidated by walking into an MSG to play a team that recently beat Nova and had gone 3-1 and one against two top teams in the conference. I tell you now, Mike, take your blue-tinted glasses off and stop being a Pollyanna. I will dress in Pirates regalia from head to toe to go watch a national watch game at a bar knowing that Nova was going to roll us over and still cheer every basket. I will watch a team that beat Kentucky, potentially the best out-of-conference win for any team in the Big East this season, and still understand that it's going to go into the Seton Hall slide in January. I will watch this team navigate the most difficult out-of-conference schedule in recent history and still tell people to knock off the talk about Willard being some kind of National Coach of the Year candidate because I know... History is going to repeat itself. It's not because I'm negative, Mike. It's because I'm watching these games and I'm seeing what's happening. And now it's going to take a miracle finish. 3-0. and Even have a chance to make the NCAA tourney at this point. I'm going to root for that miracle. I'm going to hope for that miracle. But do not tell me to watch the game played because I'm not expecting that miracle to happen. Good afternoon to you too, Tommy. How you doing? How you feeling over there? I get it. I can't sit here and challenge those statements. Right now, it is basically impossible to play the glasses half full card. Reality is we are four and seven 
in our last 11. We have a win against Georgetown. We got a win against last place Providence that required a block at the buzzer from Romaro Gill. And we have two wins against Creighton, both times having to come back down six to eight points with under four to play. Those four teams have a combined record of 17 and 27 in conference play. In addition to that, over the same stretch, We've been averaging 14.8 turnovers per game. That is up from 10.75 in the non-conference. You can't play one possession games and give the opponent four more empty trips on offense that ultimately might lead to transition points for them on top of it. You just can't win games that way. Right now, we are definitely a flawed team. We have some guys that are struggling to get through slumps. We have our superstar who's trying to overcompensate for that. We don't have a defined rotation where guys know what their roles are. Certain players have even completely fallen out of the rotation. We've lost the defensive identity that was the hallmark of this team at the beginning of the season. And the opposing teams have essentially a targeted game plan night in and night out to take advantage of these flaws. I'm not going to be here this afternoon pushing back at you to say that, you know, there are, you know, sunny days ahead or that, you know, look to the horizon and, and, and you'll see the light. I'm not feeling that right now. I, I get it. I've been angry on this podcast before. I understand the frustrations and the facts are the facts right now. They are not a tournament team. They are not playing like a tournament team. They do not instill the confidence in me to accomplish what they need to accomplish over the next three games to get to that pinnacle of being back in the tournament. And I, and I know that's kind of a 180 from where I was last week, but they did go 0-2 in a crucial stretch that we had to take care of business. And you know, Mike, these flaws that you talked about were completely evident in these last two games, starting with the Xavier game. Xavier beat us 70-69. Now, weather kept a lot of the fans away. The building was flat, and so were the Pirates when they opened up. Xavier owned the paint, scoring the first 11 buckets in the paint. We rallied to a 36-33 lead, and then we gave up one of our famous 11-0 runs, where finally Willard called a timeout. Miles Kale continued the streak of solid games. He had 21 points, 9 of 16, and 13 of them coming in the first half. We fell back by 16 points at a point. We had a major run at the end. It goes 17 to 2, but we fell short anyway. Mike, why are we starting like this every game? That's probably my biggest issue with this game is the uh, the, the coming out flat and the response that we had in the post game, talking about the loosey goosey nature in practice. I, we were looking ahead to the St. John's game. We talked about it on the last podcast that we expected to win this game, but we couldn't take it for granted. They had to get this game to put themselves at eight and six and lighten the burden of what they had to do in the remaining four games afterwards to not have that kind of focus. I'm kind of speechless more than anything else. The, the coach speak, the response from the players, the attitude coming in, the attitude to start the game. I, I don't have an answer for it. It's a lack of accountability from the top down, if you're asking me. Mike, what disappointed me most about this game was how we got bullied down low we made Xavier's bigs look like monsters and I know this has happened over and over but you'd think by now we'd have a plan around it Marshall came out and had a career high 28 points on us and even that number doesn't quite make the point of how we were dominated that game you're not you're not getting annoyed by the fact that every time we're going back and looking at the recap for what the opponent did that somebody had their career best game it doesn't matter who somebody 
from our opponent is going off on us. At what point do we expect our coaching staff to go, wow, you know, Marshall's a good player. He's no secret. He's one of the better guys that they have on their roster to go, wow, he's really kind of in the groove now in the second half. Let's change our defensive philosophy. Let's force somebody else to beat us. Does that ever happen? Does it ever happen? Obviously not, Mike. Again, we did kind of change our philosophy coming out because we started Gill. But what happens with Gill? He doesn't kind of guard the guy you're expecting him to guard. I was okay with Gill starting. We talked about that. Gill was the game game changer from the second half on in the first Xavier matchup. People forget we were down by 10 in that game against Xavier. And then Gill comes back in and defensively changed the game on a dime. It was his defense that was the catalyst for that win at the end of the day. So I have no problem with him starting. It's it's the right move. There was a lot of people that thought that he was going to kind of play that card and I had no issue, but it's kind of like head scratching. They have two big guys in their front court. They had Hankins and they had Jones. Hankins is a bigger guy, more of a plotting, you know, less mobile type center. And then you have Jones, who's you know more of a post guy, but he's definitely a little more athletic. He's got some moves. He's He's got some agility. Why is Gil not covering Hankins? Why is Sandro not on the more athletic four? Why is Gil not kind of roaming in the paint and saying if, if Sandro's going to get back down, he's going to come over and kind of give that additional support and maybe block the shot? I don't get it. So they come out and they abuse the heck out of Gil. And then Willard just continues to stick with it. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. And unfortunately, I'm not quite sure who Sandro guards anymore. I mean, he when he gets guards the five-type player, he gets beat up down low. When he guards the faster guy, he gets beat off the dribble. So it, it's kind of hard. He, he's a very limited defensive player. He can come uh, help side and make a few blocks, but it's not like he's a very good one-on-one defender. No, he's not because he's typically guarding fives and he's not a five. And yes, if the player is a more physical four, he's getting bullied down low as well. I, I get it. This is not about Sandro. I, I, it was the defensive philosophy by Willard to kind of throw a curveball or go with what he thought was a strength. And Xavier basically took it to them and he didn't make the adjustments until it was essentially too late. Once again, down by 16, and I got to give the kids credit. They dug down deep and they rallied. It's, it's becoming a broken record. So there, I, there's nothing else to even evaluate in the middle of that game other than the fact that he, they go on another 11-0 run and he doesn't call a timeout. I, I know that drove you nuts. So we, we can continue to kind of beat up on Willard for why does it have to come to epic proportions before he calls a timeout, but I, I give up. There are certain things. This is who he is. It happened again. So when we're down 16. The troops rally back. Give the kids all the credit in the world. I have a problem with the end game philosophy as to how we play that out. And I, I know there's a lot of discussion around it. We have always had success when you don't let the other team set up their defense. Everybody knows that they want to key in on Powell. We grabbed a rebound off a missed free throw down by one with under 20 seconds to play. And we call timeout. And ultimately... Xavier was able to kind of get their ducks in a row and strategically be in defensive position to shut down our last play. And we end up with a three-point attempt from Shavar Reynolds. What was your take? What would you have done in that final endgame situation? I would not have called the timeout personally. I am not against calling a timeout there. You almost have to know your squad. And to be honest with you, Mike, if you don't call timeout there, Powell dribbles that ball down court, makes some funky moves. You're taking a shot that might not be the best shot. I don't mind them setting something up. I understand you don't want to get the defense set, but I got a problem with how you come out of that timeout. I don't know that you've got the best five coming out of that timeout. There's no way to soft shoe this. Why is Shavar on the court at that point. I understand supposedly he's the second best shooter on the team in practice. He is the 
fifth option on that play. He should be the fifth option on that play. He's maybe your 10th best player, if, if you're being honest. Let's talk about why why Shavar is really in the game. I, yes, I agree with you. He's probably the 10th best player on the team, skill set-wise. But he was in the game for the last eight minutes. It's not like all of a sudden Willard calls timeout and he's like, Shavar, get in the game like he did in the St. John's game. He played the final eight minutes of the game. And I'm not playing devil's advocate here, but I'm giving you uh, the other side of the coin because I know that perspective's out there. They're down by 16, and a lot of people are kind of giving Shavar credit for being on the court and creating all this positive energy and hustling on defense. So he's a part of the collective group that kind of gets him back down one to be in a position to win. I'm going to take a different look at this, and I I know it's not going to be the popular view. But in the last eight minutes, Shavar is 0 for 2 from 3, 1 assist, 0 rebounds, And I even went back and replayed the tape on my DVR. He didn't even get his hands on one deflection. He did have the two free throws that cut it to one. But other than that, on offense, he was inbounding the ball. He was bringing up to half court and passing off to Powell. He wasn't a part of the flow. And and here's my overall issue. Everyone's like, oh, but he gave you such great energy and great effort. Shouldn't we expect that from all the guys? Shouldn't everybody play with a high level of energy? And if they all do, then Shavar is nowhere close to the skill set of some of the other guys on this roster. Hence, I'm going to say it, he's better suited as a walk-on. And if my walk-on needs to play the last eight minutes of a must-win game, then I have an issue with Willard. This is not about Shavar. It's just not. But at the end of the day, we went down shooting a three when we were down one with, as you said, potentially our 10th best player on the roster. Mike, every walk-on known to man has brought great energy. That's what walk-ons do. If you're not bringing energy as a walk-on, you're not going to be on the team. You're not on the team for a great skill set, Mike, when you're a walk-on. I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm lost for words right now. <laughs> Again, back to it. So we're down one. We don't really need a three. I read some of the articles at post-game to understand what's going on from a different angle. They said Shabar was our third option. Why is Shabar our third option when Kale is on the court, when Mamu's on the court? If anything, he's our last option. If it were the clock was winding down with a third of a second left, you're shooting that ball, that's fine. But him being the third option to shoot that shot, that bothers me. You're going to think I'm crazy. How about we get Thompson on the floor in that in that situation? He's an athletic guy. He's obviously, you know, his, his strengths are on the offensive side of the floor. He could possibly get in there and get you a rebound and a putback. He just added, he could have added so much more value to the game at that moment versus Shavar. I know he didn't play the last eight minutes. He wasn't contributing to the comeback. But if you're going to look at the personnel that fits that situation, I think you would have felt a lot more confident with Thompson in the game. Because this leads me to our, whoa, did you see that moment? You know what? Thompson did have a positive imprint on the game. There was a point where Powell grabbed a rebound. He outlets it to Roden on the fast break. Roden chases it down, goes behind the back to Thompson, who dunks it home. Electric energy. I mean, it basically showed the ability for our forwards to get out on the break with some athleticism. You know, Roden and Thompson don't get enough run at times, and we kind of, you know, play the game with Enzi and Sandro and a very slower-paced front line. We needed to be able to throw the kitchen sink at them at that moment, and that wasn't Shavar. That was another big guy to grab an officer rebound. That was another guy that possibly could shoot a mid-range jump shot. We were not down three. We were down one. Thompson's also a good free-throw shooter. I, I just, I'm with you. There were so many other angles that we could have played there, 
besides Shavar. And we really ironic, could And ironically, I think that's the last time we had a lead in that game, Mike. It was. It was. It, it was really frustrating. There are certain things that we did positively that I just don't understand why we don't do it sooner. I mean, we have a very good pressing team when we kind of create tempo off of our defense. It kind of translates to our offense, but we always wait to the end game to do that. Willer's been choking back his rotation down to six or seven guys, and he says he doesn't want to press because he doesn't want to wear out Powell. Use your bench. Here's your opportunity to use your bench. Do what we do well. Play with depth. Press. Dictate the tempo of the game to our favor. The comeback, we did that. Why not do that sooner in the game? I just don't get it. Why not? Why not play a zone against this team? You know, Xavier's like a 33% shooting team from behind the behind the three-point line. They should have never had the opportunity to break us down off the dribble, get into the paint. They shouldn't have been able to kind of send the ball down to low post options, crash the glass. We should have been packing in the zone. And then I think Gil would have been outstanding out on the floor to create that competitive advantage we want. The whole thing was a mess. And then we get into the post-game quotes, and I'll, I'll let you take it from there because I almost lost my lunch after well, I started hearing what he said. And this may be the most disappointing point of this whole game where Willard comes out and says, we were loosey-goosey in practice, and I could see, but we didn't do enough to stop it, and that's on me. For one, yes, that's absolutely on him. I don't see coaches that have have a good hold on their teams, letting guys go loosey-goosey at a must-win game. Because truly, in fact, that's a must-win game. It's basically the only game we're going to be favored in for the last five. These guys have to understand their place, and they have to understand what time it is. That's my issue. But that's my issue. He didn't say that he identified it after the game and how we have to go back to the drawing board and reevaluate. He flat-out told you, I saw the loosey-goosey attitude during practice right in front of my own eyes. I thought it was going to be an issue, and as the leader of the program, I didn't reel it in. I didn't put a stop to it. I didn't refocus them. I'm sorry. That's not okay. I'm going to use a couple other examples here of coaches that I was impressed with and how they kind of handled their post-game press conference after a tough loss similar to this one. Chris Mack, former Xavier coach, now coach at Louisville. His team recently collapsed in the second half against Duke at home. Probably as brutal of a loss that you could probably swallow. I mean, they're going to make the NCAA tournament still, but that program has a different level of expectation. And when you got the number one team in the country on the ropes to, to blow a game like that, that's a tough one to step up to the podium. But Mack gets to the podium and says, it starts with me and then the players. It's on all of us. He doesn't throw anybody under the bus. He doesn't make up excuses about the schedule. He doesn't talk about the weather and the, the lack of, of crowd participation. He says, it's me and it's my troops and it's on all of us. And that should be the answer in a game like this. I'll take it one further. McDermott, Greg McDermott from, from Creighton, after we beat Creighton at their place. I mean, that was that was a tough loss for them because he had some of his you know, senior leaders on that team or more experienced leaders on the team turn the ball over uh, when Q had all four of those steals. His guys, I saw the press conference, they were they were taking it hard up at the podium. And then they step away and McDermott goes, hey, look, it's our job as a coaching staff to get their chins back up and make sure that they learn their lessons as a result of what happened today and make sure that they turn the page for the next game. What does Creighton do? Creighton goes out 
and they win their next two games. I'm sorry. And Mike, that's exactly what we didn't do at this St. John's game. And it was brutal to watch. Madison Square Garden, Saturday night, we lose 78-70, to and it wasn't that close. For both teams, Mike, this was a major bubble game. Less so for St. John's. And boy, St. John's came out like a bat out of hell. They came out 17-2, to making seven of their first 10 shots. They brought the lead out to 28-5. to We did make a nice little run of 15-2. to The Johnnies, <laughs> though, come back with an 8-0 run to, to go up 18 at half. The first half was not pretty for Seton Hall. 15 total turnovers. Powell only had three points. The second half, the hole was too deep to dig yourself out of. We cut the lead down to five with under two, but back-to-back turnovers sealed the fate of the game. All in all, 22 turnovers for the game. Quincy McKnight, who we've talked about playing so well for most of the season, led with seven. Miles Powell didn't do much better with six and 18 from the starters themselves. We shot atrociously from behind three, five for 20 for the game, and St. John's block a total of 12 shots. It was ugly, Mike. And by the way, their second leading scorer sat out the game. This is just one of the more nasty games I have seen. There's not, there's not a stat line in there that doesn't make me sick. I'm, I'm going to attack the first, the last two real quick. So St. John's blocked 12 shots. They got one guy on the roster that is over 6'7 that logged minutes. One guy. He blocked four shots. But that means everybody else, 6'7 and under, blocked a total of eight shots. Since when is St. John's this defensive juggernaut? What the heck? And yes, Mustafa Heron did not play. Here's a guy who averages almost 15 points a game, five rebounds a game. He's, he's arguably their second best player. What would have happened? You tell me. What would have happened if... Miles Kale or Sandro or McKnight was not suited up for this game and and we would have lost. We would have had excuses lined up for miles and miles to talk about. But their second best player on a team that essentially only goes six or seven players deep is not on the floor and we get blown out 28 to five out of the gate. How does that happen? Mike, the Johnnies felt wronged from opening night. They felt that they lost because of the refs bad whistle and, and a, basically a lucky shot coming off of a, a walk-on. I get it. And they turned that into anger. They played angry. They ah. wanted to beat us. They wanted to shove it down our throats, Mike. And I'm that worked for it. them. I'm not buying it. I mean, that game essentially was a lifetime ago. Okay, fine. So in, in the back of their minds, they have this revenge game that they want to create. I mean, It wasn't in the about, back of their minds, Mike. It was a big talking point to the, all, all well, half the week the media, leading up the to the media, game. That's the media hyping it up again to make a story. I'm sorry. St. John's right now has six quadrant one wins. We have three. Yes, it, it, this is a bubble game. That was also media garbage. They're trying to hype up the game. Right now, St. John's is projected to be like an eight seed. If they would have lost this game to us, yes. Yes, it's a setback, but they are one solid step ahead of us for where they need to be in their NCAA tournament positioning. This game meant the world to us. So regardless of what the motivation was for the Johnnies, we absolutely should have brought the the energy level needed to put our best foot forward, specifically after the atrocity that happened in the Xavier game. There is no reason for the energy level to be that low in back-to-back starts. That's the issue. Forget about St. John's. This is not about St. John's. 
This is about the leadership that was brought to the table to right the wrong energy-wise, focus-wise, dedication, whatever you want to call it, that happened in the Xavier game. Now, it doesn't mean that they were just going to win just because they brought that energy level, but that should have been a minimum. That should have been the minimum. And what ends up happening because of that is we have that miserable 28-5 to start. Willard has to play mad scientist all of a sudden and bring guys in left and right and try to find a combination that works. And he did for a little bit. You mentioned that we went on a 15-2 to run, correct? Yes, sir. Who, who were the two guys, in your opinion, that kind of spearheaded? No, don't make me do this, Mike. I'm, I'm, I'm don't doing make it. me do this. I'm, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to answer. This, this is the crux of this game. Now, this, this is where the storyline of this game, unfortunately, went. Who were the two guys who, in the minds of the, the viewing audience, changed the momentum of the game in that 15-2 to run? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you one. Romaro Gill, they went zone. I don't know why they waited so long to go zone, but they go zone, and Gil actually starts changing the game. He, he wasn't even supposed to be a, a, an influence in this game. He can't match up against St. John's. Oh, look at that. We played a zone. We put our legit 7-2 center in the middle of the zone, and he made problems for the opposing team. What a concept. So kudos to Gil. He actually started to change the tempo defensively. Who else? Who else in your mind changed the flow of that game? Well, not in my mind. You got to do it. Who who in the the main audience's mind? Shavar Reynolds. It's true. It's true. He he came out with a high level of energy again. I I keep on using this this high level level of energy to describe Shavar. Sure. Do you want to know what his stats were for the game? Do you want to know what Shavar's final stat line was? I know what the final stat line is, Mike. He was one for seven for the game. That's correct. That's right. He had three fouls. Tommy, Tommy, he got blocked going to the basket three times like he was in middle school playing against the high school team. I'm sorry. He looked outmatched out there. It wasn't good. Mike, do you realize he had the second most shots at halftime of any pirate out there? I don't understand it. Look, nobody played good. Nobody played good. But the problem is the regression of this team is so bad that right now people think that Shavar Reynolds is the answer at point guard. We have to talk about this. Q, we, we have to talk about the, the last two games that Q had and the fact that we think that Shavar is now the answer. So, I mean, Q has had a bad game back-to-back right now, and it's not it hasn't even been close. It was so-so. It, it's been ugly. He has regressed to the point where people have are kind of forgetting everything he's done throughout the course of the year and saying, uh-oh, we're back to not having a traditional point guard. It's interesting because I started to, to listen to the telecast and Len Elmore brought up a really, really good point that I hadn't looked at the numbers for. In the last 11 games, did you know that Q was averaging more than four turnovers per game? And that did not include the seven that he had yesterday. Well, there's That's a crazy. reason why we're four and seven in the last 11. We're turning that ball over too much. And we're not having someone lead the offense. I mean, it's, it's not rocket science, Mike. I don't want to pick on Q. Q has been a revelation for what I expected from him, from coming over from Sacred Heart, being this combo guard, putting him behind, you know, the the key, giving him the keys to the bus to run the point guard. I thought this was going to be another failed Kadeem Carrington experiment, another, you know, Madison Jones taking a half a season to kind of get his feet under him. Q's been really good. He's been very surprising, but teams have adjusted. Teams have kind of caught on to the fact that Q is maybe a little slow on his first step in beating his man off the dribble and getting into the paint. And then when he does, he really is not a kind of pass-first type point guard. He He's a scorer. He's, he's a combo guard. Those guys look to score first. Willard even told him, middle of the season, I need you to be more aggressive. Last two games, 
Q has done that. Guys have kind of played off of him, telling him, I'm, I'm going to dare you to shoot. So that, that slow step to begin with looks even slower. And therefore, he gets trapped underneath the basket. He gets trapped on his, his jump stop halfway through the lane with no place to go. He's breaking all the cardinal sins of what a point guard is not supposed to do. And to the average eye, everyone's like, uh-oh, what's going on here? Well, he doesn't I, have that natural point guard vision. I mean, because that's not his game. And, and there's nothing wrong to say that. It's what Kadeem had a problem with last year. You took Kadeem out of his sweet spot, which was playing the two, and put him at the one. It's a different position. It's not the same game. It's different to beat people off the dribble at the two than it is at the one. I agree with you. I love Q. I, I got to come make sure I put this out there. I really like Q, but I think he'd be great, more suited as like a super sub six man kind of like Derek Gordon back on the 15 16 team come off the bench play awesome defense I mean he has shut guys down we gave you the list of the performances that the opposing point guard have had and it hasn't been pretty all because of Q come off the bench give us that spark be the emotional leader defensively and then guess what his offensive game is not that bad so I can deal with him as my backup point guard I can deal with him coming in and playing off the ball and saying hey go be a aggressive go get yours but we need somebody to facilitate the offense and right now i'm not saying you have to bench him but he's not getting the job done and to listen to the fan base immediately go oh i know the answer i like the energy from shavar we gotta play shavar at the point i even read jerry carino in his most recent write-up for the game recap says i wouldn't be surprised if shavar gets the start at georgetown how are you going to feel if Shavar takes the court as a starter? Let's hold Georgetown off game? until we start talking about the Georgetown game. You were talking about Q being bad this game. You know who was also bad? Kevin Willard. Now, I've bashed on Kevin for the past few weeks, but this is inexplicable. Let's forget about the point that for a second straight game, he didn't have his team ready to come out. How do you only get Miles Kale 23 minutes when he's possibly been your best player over the last two weeks? It's going to drive me nuts. He had a mic. Minus 27. Shouldn't the entire team have had a minus 27? They, they were down 28 to 5. Nobody should have had a good plus minus. So at some point, you got to have one of your best guys on the court to be a part of that comeback. They'll call a timeout, do wholesale substitutions, bench him for the rest of the first half. But how is Kill not back in that game? To be one of your go-to shooters, go-to scorers down the stretch. I mean, everyone says Kale plays great defense. He adds so much more value on the court. And on top of that, he's been your best player. Best player, not Powell, Kale two straight games in a row. He's probably he's got to be nailed to the, about the he's got to be nailed to the bench now. I just he, don't get it. He's probably the most important guy on that team at that point when you're trying to match up with St. John's. St. John's is an athletic team. You need Kale out there to play some defense. But Mike Totally. Also, totally. why are we always ball switching to the point where Enzi and Sandro end up guarding the point guard and they had potentially the best point guard in the Big East last night toasting them. You're baiting me. This is not fair. You're baiting me. I literally took my my pitchfork and my torch and I and I put it in the shed to start the season. I said I was going to be well behaved this year, that it's a rebuilding season and I'm not going to pick on Willer because this is a young team. And, and you're making me take it out right now. He doesn't get it. So yeah, that's his philosophy and he, and he takes his philosophy 
philosophies to a point of no return where he gets burned by it. He's just it's kind of almost a point of stubbornness. So here's my issue. You know, Shamari Pons is probably one of the most creative and athletic players, not only in the Big East, but in the entire country. And his strength is to be able to get into a one on one position when he has a mismatch and either take his guy to the basket or shoot a three or a step back jump shot. He's got everything in his tool bag. I mean, it's it's him, Powell, and Howard. They're all in kind of the same class. So you're telling me that the defensive philosophy to come out and start this game is we're going to stick with the switching of the pick and roll? M- Mullen knew it was coming. First possession, end of the shot clock, switched pick and roll, and there's Sandro trying to cover pawns. Boom, jump shot, down three. Next possession, switched pick and roll, jump shot, down five. Mind-blowing. Why, why are we not playing a zone? We did. We ultimately did after it was 17-2. Why? It's just, it's driving me nuts. It's driving me nuts. And finally, Mike, we still don't have a rotation. We The guys don't know what their roles are on this team. I'm sorry. Anthony Nelson, two minutes. I know you don't think much of Torian Thompson, but you think he'd have a good matchup against these guys. He played only two minutes. I'm gonna go. Jek- I'm gonna go Jekyll and Hyde on you here. I want Thompson now. I, w- I- I've been killing the guy. He he has a wide open three in the corner. I forgot what the score was. Like I said, it wasn't pretty, but he comes into the game. He has a wide open baseline three in the corner. If anybody else gets that shot, you want them to take it. I have no problem if Thompson wants to take that shot in the flow of the game. I got a problem when he wants to step back, dribble for five minutes, shoot an NBA three from like 26 feet. Yeah, that's what we have a problem with. But the pass gets made to him in the corner. He's wide open. No one's hit a shot. You're going to pull him because he missed one three. You want your point guard to possibly get in the flow of the game to see if he's going to give you anything better than the five turnovers that Q has given you to this point. And you're going to evaluate that in two minutes for, for Nelson. Well, what is that? I mean, uh-huh. What is it? I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to say I don't know what Anthony Nelson can give us at this point of the season. You've spent the last, I don't know, four weeks or so burying him in the bench. He spent big minutes during the out-of-conference season, and he looked good. And why do we do – Mike, answer me this question. Why do we have a tough out-of-conference schedule? Mike, why do we do that? You're supposed to be kind of hardening your team, right? B- building up the confidence for the grueling Big East schedule. Two Get things. these guys prepared, right? Get them prepared. You're, you're prepping for the Big East, and you're also trying to figure out what your rotation is. Kentucky was possibly the most talented team we played. And in overtime, who was finishing out that game? Thompson, very Thompson and, was. Yep. And Anthony Nelson. Nelson was. And Nelson was, absolutely. If you trust Anthony Nelson against a team the caliber of Kentucky, how are you not trusting him against the Xavier, against the St. John's? No offense to St. John's. They're no Kentucky. How do you, you know not trust him against Creighton? How do you not trust him against Providence? He's you know, he's basically useless at this point to you. You know who he didn't trust? You know who he didn't trust in that Kentucky game? He didn't get a minute. He didn't get a minute of an overtime game. Shavar Reynolds. You're right. He did not step on that court. But but now he's playing monumental minutes down the stretch here. I, I'm, I'm really confused. And, and I think the players are. And 
when you're a younger player, this, once again, this is not about Javar, but when you're a younger player on the roster, like a Rodin, like a Nelson, and you're a freshman, and the coach is not going to give you this long rope, you need to know what your role is. I don't know how Nelson can prepare mentally for a big game like this, not knowing if he's going to get more than two minutes. How, how do you come into this game? Uh, Thompson, I don't know if he's in the doghouse. I don't know if he's mentally struggling. But how do you prepare yourself as a 19-year-old kid, 20-year-old kid, to come in and make a big impact all of a sudden when the coach calls your number when we're down by 23. It's, it's not this NBA stuff where you're like, you know, you're the 15th man on the roster and your job, because it's your job, is to come to work prepared because you never know when your chance is going to be. It's a different level when you're a kid. These, these are kids still. He is not putting them in a, in a position to succeed. And to be honest, transitioning to the stupid stuff that the announcers say, Willard doesn't put them in a position to succeed defensively either. So I'm going to pick on Tim Brando here. I, I really am. Timmy, I'm coming for you. Tim Brando, as they come back from the, the TV timeout when the score was 17 to 2, he goes, um, Willard likes to change defenses, but when you get down this quickly, it takes the coach's opportunity to make some of those changes away. I'm sitting there, you're going, are you kidding me? This is the exact time to change your defense. You've gone man to man and you're down 17 to 2 and Brando's like, uh, he can't do his job now. He's hamstrung. Come on! I sound so whiny today, but it's the truth. I think it's 17-2. Tim's trying to say something positive about Willard here. I think it's part of the contract where all announcers have to say positive things about coaches. And players, too. He, Tim Tim continues to go on at one point say, Kale has been substantial all season. Really? Have you, have you watched the game? I mean, Kale has been as up and down as anybody. He's been substantial all season? What does it even mean? Brando gets under my skin. He's one of those guys that I think, once again, he writes down a couple of things and he sticks to his script and he has his go-to lines. Can you be a little more creative, please? How many times is he going to say, the rim was kind, the rim was unkind? Can you get some new material already? Well, Timmy, uh, I think Timmy was missing having Desi on the court because he didn't get a chance to say Babalu. Desi goes, Babalu! I, I, I'm bitter today, obviously. Which has got, which will go over about 90% of the audience's head at this point, by the way. <laughs> I don't even know what's up next, Tom. I, I don't. I'm, 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 I'm exhausted right now. I think most people are angry. Most people are frustrated. I'm at the point where I try to give that hope going into the next week and say, but only if I'm exhausted right now. What's going to happen going to this Georgetown? I don't even want to talk about Georgetown. I mean, well, let's take a look at Georgetown. I don't know that we have much to say about Georgetown that's different than two weeks ago when we were prepping for the game then. Again, they've got a big down low in um, Jesse Govan is a m mobile, powerful big. Their starting backcourt should play better because they're at home. They're young. The freshmen oftentimes do feed off the home crowd energy they're coming off the biggest win of the patrick ewing era and it's officially the patrick ewing era because they've beaten nova i'm gonna say what i said last week i don't care you have to beat georgetown if you want to make the ncaa tournament at this point you've buried yourself in a hole you've got swept by depaul you have lost games on the road that you probably could have won against bottom third opponents in the conference you you gave away the xavier game i don't care about the scouting report figure it out you have to go and win this game mike i i, I tend to agree I don't worry about Georgetown as a team in general. If we play up to our potential, we should beat them handily. But the problem is Willard is thinking about it. It may be a time to change the starting line. 
You beat me to the punch. You beat me to the punch. What? What is this? We were 27 games in, Tommy. You're going to change the lineup now? But let's go. What? Let's go through the lineup. Let's talk about where potentially we're going to make that change. Let's start at the at the one. Q. It, 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 it's already been put out there. This is what I was talking about with Carino's article. Carino's like, hey, we got positive energy with Shavar. Things were going well with Shavar. Whether it's true, whether it's not, whether it's you know the eye test, I, I don't know. But right now, people think Shavar Reynolds is the answer. Let, let's so forget if, about let's forget that Shavar is a, a walk on to start off with. Let's let's forget fine, that fine, concept. Fine. What is Shavar? He's a two. He's not, he's not a point guard. He right. is not a point guard. So no. what are you going to do bringing the ball up? You're basically going to do one of two things. You're going to have him bring the ball up to half court, hand it off to Miles Powell, and start your offense. That's, that's all you're going to do because that's all I've ever seen him do as a point. I or I, I number agree. two, you're going to have Miles Powell bring the ball up, which takes him out of his natural position and it slows I'm, us down. I'm going to be disgusted if we move Miles to some type of a pseudo point guard at points in the game when you feel like he's not getting his touches. If you want to give him the ball up high and let him facilitate the offense. I get that. I, I'm okay with that once in a while. It kind of counteracts uh, the, the fronting, the, the the face guarding that he sees all the time. I'm okay with that. You cannot experiment and make Powell your KC point guard like we did last year, 27 games in. Please, God, please, no, do not let that be the case. So, so, so I'm not taking Q out at this point. Q's defense is still solid. He's had... Two very bad games, horrendous games. It is what it is. This is like I said, we're, we're going to keep it real. But what Q has done up until this point has been better than anything that Shavar could bring to the table as a point guard in the offense. So either I'm going to Nelson, who has not played at all. So now all of a sudden you're going to say, well, it could be Nelson who's played what four minutes over the last two games, or I'm going to kind of ride my ride my horse here and I'm going to stick with Q because that's the best that I got. If Nelson was getting up to 12 quality minutes a game and you thought to yourself, you know what? Maybe we make the switch. We bring Q off the bench. We start Nelson because he's been playing well. You do a, like a 20, 20 and sure. 20 split. Maybe sure. that works, but you are not going to get quality minutes out of Nelson after having him sit all this time. And, and that's not fair to Nelson On the road. again, right? Right? This is not fair to Nelson On again. the road. Right. He's a freshman. He hasn't played. He's got no confidence. Must win I, game. I, I can't throw him into the deep end right now. And uh, But this is this, all these things we're talking about. It's not a referendum on the players. This and, all comes back to Willard. All right. And, Let, and so, you, and, and, but if this happens, if you do start Shabar, play him eight minutes, and then you put Q in for the rest of the game, that that's just uh, the no, biggest I, waste I, 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 I of a benching I've ever seen. So our takeaway is no, even though everyone's talking about it, and even though the Q's had back-to-back -back bad games, no, the change should not happen at point guard. No. Uh, okay, fine. Between shooting guard, small forward, power forward, you can't make any changes. You're not going to sit either of the Mileses, and you can't sit Sandro because, for one, Sandro hasn't done anything to uh, necessitate a sitting, and who you're going to put out in front of him. Thompson? All right, so, so, no, all right, so so let's let's play some hypotheticals here, and then we can go we can go outside the box. We can go position for position. Villanova over the years, when they've had to reinvent themselves, have done what? They, they've typically gone, you know, very very small with their lineups. They try to make the other team adjust to their ability to be quick on the perimeter. Maybe that's not the strength of this team, but if you're going to throw a curveball, why could we not try that? Why could you not stay Q at the point, Powell at the two, Kale at the three? 
Roden at the four and move Sandro over to the five and just try to go as athletic uh, as, as you can. And then when Sandro's not in, you play Sandro and Enzi back and forth. And once again, try to stay with this really, really quick lineup. You could even sit there and say, I know this is once again a little extreme. Can, can Thompson get a couple minutes? Are we in that? Your point is, are we in desperation mode where once again, Thompson has played if, limited minutes over the last four games. Now we're going to throw Thompson into the deep end and not even just give him minutes, but we're going to let him start. I, if I don't you were, get it. If Thompson was getting double-digit minutes and playing quality ball, and you thought for this game just to throw a curveball, you were going to put him in, maybe slide Sandra over to the five, although I think that's a mistake because he can't guard the five. Okay, but again, you haven't built up your bench. The, the Roden move, that's interesting. I don't know that he's not still very scattered on offense it may work in the sense that he's got a bit of a safety net so it's not out there with three other guys that play two minutes a game and he's trying to figure out how to put the ball in a hole I'd love to see Roden go to the hole a little more instead of pulling that three that he does all the time unless it's against Butler I don't want to see him shooting a three this is all fun conversation when we're talking about how versatile this lineup could be at the beginning of the season or hey we've gotten to a value the team's strengths and weaknesses and what some of the younger players can bring to the table as we wrap up the non-conference and and talk about how we can kind of make it through the Big East schedule. They, these are wonderful conversations to be having then, not with three games to go and your tournament life on the line. Like I said, this is not about Georgetown and which change in the starting lineup is going to give us an advantage against Georgetown. My concern is with Willard. I have Willard in the post game, saying relative to Miles Powell on having another slow start, I just think he's been a little bit too passive. He's not playing with that selfishness early in games. He goes on to say, but I think some of these other guys need to help him out just a little bit more early in games instead of just sitting there and watching Miles. And I need to make some changes to facilitate that a bit. This is why I'm worried. This is why I'm worried. It's like he came to this revelation in game 27. Is this the first time that you've seen this this year? No, Mike. This has been happening all season long. We've been crying about it all season long. So I'm concerned that as we are heading into the must-win game, the, the season's on the line, whatever the heck you want to call it, I got my coach grasping for straws. I gave you two examples earlier from Mac and McDermott where they basically were the rocks of their program, took accountability, said what the team needs to do, talked about the support that the program needs top to bottom in these tough times, where they have to look themselves in the mirror and come out and be accountable. And, and I got my coach sitting there going, changes are coming. I got to figure things out to help Powell now. What was it not two weeks ago where he basically did a Jim Fossil and said, I'm putting all my chips into the middle. We are going to ride Powell. Because that's how good he is. And now he's flipping the script after this horrendous loss and going, oh, no, 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 I got to change that. I don't know what it is yet, but I got to change that. I'm not confident at this point going into the Georgetown game as big of a moment as it needs to be. Mike, I'm not confident for the rest of the season, but let's talk about what we have in front of us. The team is seven and eight. And I've been saying since the beginning of the podcast, we need to go 10 and eight to make the tourney. And now, especially after the clunkers that we've had, I don't know why nine and nine is still that number people are hanging their hat on. It's not like we've gotten the benefit of the doubt from the committee 
in the past. We get uh, sent I, I, out uh, west. Oh, we get bad on. seatings. I, no, no, oh, this is honestly. Oh, give me the sour grapes with the committee story. This no, is not about that. We're not going to get in at 9 and 9, Mike. Not after gotta, crapping the bed like we have. I said we weren't going to talk about this till we got closer. We are closer. If anybody is following the bracket projections that are out there from the various analysts, it gets worse and worse every year. The, the, the parity across the country has really watered things down. And you look at the teams that are essentially on the fringe from getting in, the, the teams on that 10 through 12 seed line, and there are some really bad teams out there. You got teams like Clemson. I mean, Indiana was – this one drives me nuts. Indiana was like last four out or first four out just the other week. They had lost 10 out of 11 games. They were 14 and 13, and they were still in the conversation. To me, that is the definition of a weak bubble. So once again, I'm not sure exactly where we fall on this, but I've never seen a bubble as weak as it is. Mike, I, I think say- a lot of these prognosticators don't really watch the games. I don't even know that they even pay attention to the results at times. Hence why we got two votes in the top 25 after we had lost to DePaul. I thought we might be 9-9, nine and nine, and I thought some of those wins were going to be home against DePaul, at Providence, home against Xavier. I thought we were going to have the the construct of a very weak nine and nine. They've missed those opportunities. Now to get to nine and nine, it has to be a quadrant one win at Georgetown, or it has to be two wins at home against Nova and Marquette. To get these last two wins, it is going to solidify the nine and nine. It just is. So we can agree to disagree. You say 10 and eight. I say nine and nine. Give me the game at Georgetown. I'm not confident. And then maybe we figure out a way to get one one of the two down the stretch at home against the big boys. We need a miracle, Mike. It feels that way. I, I, for once, I'm not telling you, let's just go play the games. I'm, I don't know what to expect, and I don't have a positive gut feeling. We'll see. Mike, I'm going to dust out the 25-year-old Seton Hall hat. I'm going to put it on. I'm going to put on the nearly as old sweatshirt that's in the back of my dresser drawer, and we're going to watch these games. I'm going to cheer the heck out of them, but I'm not expecting the miracle. That's fair. So if you have enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former walk-on John Yablonski, former WSOU color commentator Mike McEnany, and 1989 team manager Clark Holly. For Tom Chilkoharski, I am Mike Dizzy Diziri, and you have been listening to Left Post. <laughs>